0: This
1: is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. In this episode, I talk with Elizabeth Comack retired professor from the University of Manitoba, and author or editor of 13 books. Elizabeth is, I think, the most prolific writer and editor that I've had the pleasure of talking with on this podcast. Elizabeth's work has looked at racism, prisons, colonialism, and in our conversation, we talk about the tremendous responsibility that one has when they are gifted the story of someone else. Elizabeth Komak, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, hi, Nora. I'm so happy to be here.
1: To start off, could you introduce yourself, your relationship with Fernwood, and the kinds of things that you have written with them over the years?
0: Ooh, um, I have a pretty long-standing relationship with Fernwood, but maybe I'll start by saying that I am... I'm presently a um, professor emerita uh, at the University of Manitoba. I taught there for about three decades, and then I was at University of Winnipeg for about a decade before then. So I've uh, been supposedly in retirement mode since um, July of 2020, um, but still um, pretty active in terms of doing research and writing. I'm just not teaching anymore. Uh, In terms of my relationship with Fernwood, it goes back a long way. I first met Errol Sharp um, back in the early 1980s. And I did uh, two edited books with him when he was uh, with Garamond. And then when he started up Fernwood in the early 90s, I continued uh, working with him and with Fernwood. I actually had to print it out because I can't keep them all straight. <laughs> I've done five edited collections uh, and six um, six books. Wow! Over the over the years, yeah well,
1: that that is incredible. And I don't know how many of our listeners have ever written a book or have witnessed the process of writing a book up close, but that's an incredible amount
0: of work. <laughs> I suppose so, eh? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, I don't sort of think about it a lot, but yeah, it's it's not a bad deal. Yeah.
1: Can you describe uh, those works? What have been the themes in the books that you've written? Uh, what have been your highlight uh, projects? And are you working on something right
0: now? Well, I'm a sociologist and a criminologist by training. Um, most of uh, the work that I've done, I put under the kind of the umbrella of social justice. And so a lot of it is uh, around issues of social inequality, race, class, gender in particular, and the ways in which those um, social inequalities um, feed into uh, the criminal justice system. They feed into legal practice. And so a lot of the work has is been about kind of interrogating what does that look like? Um, but uh, what uh, a, a lot of my work is based upon, though, is interviews that I've done with folks who have experienced all of that firsthand. So one of the um, first uh, books of that nature that I did um, is a book called Women in Trouble. And that came out in 1996. And that was based on interviews that I did with women at the provincial jail here in Manitoba. And it was looking at um, the connections between their histories of abuse and getting in trouble with the law. And so I think it was kind of like one of the first of its kind in Canada. I think that's pretty Mm. accurate to say that, that really kind of drew on the women's stories and tried to, to kind of showcase or feature their stories and their ways of making sense of their lives. And I, and I think the book had quite a, a strong impact. Um, I used it a lot in teaching. A lot of my books are uh, were written kind of with my students in mind, that these are the kinds of things that I think they need to know. Um, so I kind of continued on in that kind of work. Uh, I did another book that focused on men who were incarcerated. It's called Out There in Here, and that was based on interviews that I did with guys at the Headingley Correctional uh, Centre, the Headingley Jail. Um, mostly about the violence that they've encountered in their lives and the violence that they've enacted in their lives. Um, I've also done a book called Racialized Policing, which was all around, um, at the time, the language was Aboriginal people's encounters uh, with the police. And for that, um, I did some work with Nahani Fontaine in Winnipeg where we interviewed um, indigenous people about their experiences with the police. So that's kind of showcased in the book. Um, Yeah. So, but uh, just kind of like to bookend the, the women in trouble book, um, I you know, 20 years had gone by and I was kind of curious about, well, have things changed, especially for, uh, women in jail? Like, what are things like now? Because over that period of time, Manitoba got a new correctional center for women. And, you know, I have things uh, changed at all. So I um, actually did a, a kind of a follow up to Women in Trouble that came out in 2018 called uh, Coming Back to Jail. And that was based on about 47 interviews that I did with women at the at the Provincial Jail here about their lives and about what the experience of imprisonment was like for them and it was what was really really something about doing that is I was going around the different units in the in the prison and you know telling the women about what I was doing, asking if I could interview and kind of telling them about the women in trouble book, and there was a group of women sitting around in this really small tiny room doing some beating because that's the only place where they were allowed to do beating. And so this woman is sitting there, an older woman, and she's sitting there beating and she just kind of looks up and says, yeah, I'm in that book. And and so I had called her Sarah in Women in Trouble. So I ended up doing another interview with Sarah to say, okay, she was then 50 years old um, and she'd been in her early thirties when I first interviewed her in the early nineties. And so that, that was a pretty awesome experience to be able to include her story in terms of what had happened since the women in trouble book had had been done.
1: Do you recall what Sarah said about her experiences over that, that length of time involved with the system?
0: Well, it was really neat because I, you know, you can't hang on to transcripts of, of interviews. You have to um, shred those once you're done for ethical reasons, but I had kept my notebook where I kept my notes um, from each of the interviews. And I still had that from 20 years ago. And so I brought that to the interview. And so we kind of looked through the notes that I had taken uh, and kind of started with talking about that. And she thought that was kind of interesting, you know, thinking back Mm. where she was back then. And, um, uh, you know, she'd had lots of troubles with her partner and her partner was still in her life 20 years later. and. She had just essentially spent her time continuing um, to go kind of in and out of jail. Um, a lot of times it was on remand, never for really lengthy periods of time. But but yeah, that's kind of what had happened to her.
1: Wow. What about more generally? What kind of changes did you see in within the system between the, 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 the writing of those two books?
0: Um, well, it it was interesting because the the old jail was in Portugal Prairie and it was it it was really old. Like it was built in the late eighteen hundreds. So here you have this spanking new uh women's correctional center, which is just outside the uh of Winnipeg, and it's you know, got all of these um kind of facilities and it's it's you know, this really nice new building, but it's still all the same. One of the things that um, was really kind of evident, to me at least, was the way in which neoliberalism had really kind of kicked in and and was sort of being felt in terms of a lot of the correctional policy, a lot of the the ways of making sense of women who get in trouble. I mean, all of that, I think, was, uh, was pretty much felt. So, I mean, a prison is still a prison. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether you've got, you know, shiny walls or not, that you're still being incarcerated. And it's still very much felt like a prison. I mean, I, uh, I uh, have a tendency towards claustrophobia. So for even for me to have to go into that prison to do the interviews was difficult. I mean, it was very evident that you were, you were enclosed while you were there.
1: Right. Right. What's the process like to take someone else's story or the collection of more than 40 people's stories And boil that down into a book that you're hoping that I imagine that people might have no knowledge about this at all as they pick this up. How did you go through that process?
0: Well, I can say it's a huge responsibility because people entrust you with their stories. And sometimes they tell you things they've never told anyone else, sometimes because nobody's ever asked them. So I'm just this concerned listener, right, who I'm interested in learning about their lives. And um, so the whole process of doing the interview is difficult. And you can imagine, too, especially if you're incarcerated, it's not the best place, you know, to kind of deal with some of the stress that that might create. And I was very mindful of that. To try to speak to your question, it, It's, I guess it's that that idea that I am constantly aware of my responsibility that I kind of... I've always sort of thought of it as being kind of like a midwife, right? Mm. That I'm there to try to kind of help usher their story out more into a public space to make it more visible so that other people can hear it too. That's kind of how I see it. And so to do it in a way that's honest, to to use their words uh, when I can so that you can almost hear their voice in the way that they say something. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it, it's 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 not easy, I suppose. Mm.
1: Now, this might be a bit of a writing nerd question, but you've written six books and then also edited another five. What is your process for writing? How do you approach the blank page? Uh, well, it's not
0: a blank page, because <laughs> 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 if I just stood, you know, all those movies and things where you see a writer sitting in front of a blank screen. <laughs> you know hoping for you know a big idea or something. Uh I'm very big on outlines. And you know right. when I was uh teaching that's and and supervising graduate students, I mean I was always down on them. You need an outline. You can't start writing until you're ready to start writing. Um and I don't know what your experience is, you know, as a as a journalist and a writer yourself, but I mean, if I it's my safety net. If I don't have a pretty detailed outline in front of me, then I don't know where I'm going. It's my map, right? That's
1: exactly how I have also felt, and and sometimes I do the the more freehand, like let it flow kind of thing. But the second you hit three thousand words, that that stops working.
0: <laughs> it's, I could never understand. You know, I I I know some colleagues who say no, they just sit down and they start writing that doesn't make a lick of sense to me. I I don't Mm. know how they could do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Now would you consider yourself a writer or did you come through writing because of the necessity
0: of, of, of writing as an academic? That's a, a, that's a good question. Um, I, I still don't really consider myself a writer. It it seems odd (laughs) to say (laughs) that, but I, I suppose that you know it's kind of like the the public image of the writer like um i i i I think I came to it through being an academic and that that was one of the requirements that you needed to publish as part of your job and I was you know that was something I was always interested in doing um and it took me a very long time actually um, to write the way that I aimed to or wanted to, because what what you learn when you go through um, university and through graduate school is you learn to pick up this really fancy language, right? So that you really are are only intelligible to other people who know the same language. And I've always tried to resist that in my writing. I've always tried to make it as accessible as I could. Um, And in part, because I had a student audience in mind for a lot of my writing. And I wanted to be able to explain things to them in a way that I thought they could understand more easily. But, but yeah, I, I've had trouble sort of seeing myself as a writer, but I guess I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean,
1: after six books, I think, uh, I think you can reasonably uh, call call yourself that. And And you're working right now on a next book. Can you tell us about that project?
0: Yes. um, Actually, just this morning, I was working on some revisions uh, to the manuscripts. Um, This is a book called, that's going to be called Realizing a Good Life. And the subtitle is uh, Men's Pathways Out of Drugs and Crime. And again, it's based on stories. And it's based on interviews that I did uh, with men who'd been in trouble. Um, And This It's a project I started with my friend Larry Morissette. Um, Larry and I and Jim Silver and um, Laurie Dean had done a book called Indians Wear Red uh, that came out in 2013, which is another one of the Fernwood books. And that one was based on interviews that we did with guys who were involved in um, Aboriginal street gangs. And so Larry and I wanted to continue on with that work because we felt that there was more that we could do. And so we started meeting with guys who'd been either gang involved, they'd been in trouble with the law, um, they'd been in, you know uh, involved with drugs and alcohol. And we were interested in in meeting with them over a period of time to to get a sense of you know what were some of the challenges and the struggles they were encountering. You know, most of the guys that we met with were indigenous. You know what? What had their lives been like? Um, um, you know, and, and to get a sense of how how is it that they're able to move forward and try to realize a good life? Sadly, uh, Larry passed away quite suddenly um, back in 2016, and so i had been meeting. We've been meeting with uh, these guys and. Um, we decided the way to honor Larry would be to continue on with that work. So it kind of went over a five-year period. So I had in total like 113 transcripts or something of all these meetings. And so that's what I've done is to build this book around the stories told to me. And five of the guys in particular, over that period of time, managed to maintain sobriety. Uh, They kind of move forward in their lives, they were getting uh, work, they were supporting their families. And so they feature fairly prominently in the, in the manuscript. Uh, And there's, there's 23 guys altogether that I met with. And so telling their stories.
1: When you first met with them, how did they uh, receive the pitch? Like, how did they, how did they receive this idea that this would be eventually part of a book?
0: I thought that they, I think they thought that was kind of cool. Um, you know, mm. uh, and especially the five that really stuck with it over a five year period. Um, they actually were very intent on being able to tell their story because they thought it might help other guys who are in the same situation. And that's true for a lot of people that I've interviewed over the years that that they're, they, they are very willing to tell their story because they think it might help someone else to know that they're not alone, that other people have gone through stuff as well. And that, you know, you can, and in in this case, anyway, you can move out of it, that things can be better.
1: What are the kind of uh, public policy interventions or, or other social changes that become evident as necessary throughout the process of reading this book?
0: You know what it really boils down to? And it, you know, sometimes you know things, but it kind of hits you in a different way. You know, I start the book off talking about, you know, what is realizing a good life actually mean? And, um, and, I, and I walk through how realizing a good life is going to be more challenging for some people, given the social inequalities that exist. And so I provide all these statistics around poverty and homelessness and precarious work and, and all of that. What all of that, it seems to me, this was my little insight, what all of that really signifies, the 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 stats that we have on the extent of social inequality in our society, is that we're a society that doesn't really care. That's what that represents. And what what it boils down to for a lot of these guys is that they they need to care. Uh, and they also need to be cared for. And we also need to care about them, right? So it's that notion of care that I think kind of encapsulates the gist of it.
1: Mm. And I imagine colonization looms large as well in uh, in the background in these stories.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys uh, have parents who were uh, survivors of the schools and Uh, You know, a lot of them are living in Winnipeg's inner city, which is a very racialized space. Um, Yeah, very much.
1: Recently, there was an article that I'm sure you saw at CBC uh, Manitoba or CBC Winnipeg that um, that told the story of, of, you know, crime in the downtown through the eyes of residents who are just fed up and this is not their Winnipeg anymore. And there was a lot of reaction to this, uh, obviously, saying that this was a frame that was dehumanizing to the people that live there uh, and was falling into to tropes and this kind of thing. And as you're talking, I was thinking about this article and I was thinking about the role that Radical Publishing plays in Canada. Can you talk about why it's been so important for you to, to publish with Fernwood?
0: Uh, critical books for critical thinkers. <laughs> you know, that's what it boils down to. Um, and I I actually made a very conscious choice to stick with Fernwood over the years. It was a political choice on my part. Um, you know, academics are supposed to publish. And a lot of academics have this idea that, well, for whatever they publish to really count in academia, it should be with the multinationals or it should be with the university press or you know that they've got this idea that that to go with a an independent um, pu- publisher like Fernwood somehow isn't as reputable. I'm not sure, or it's not going to get them promoted, or I'm not sure what their their sense is. But I certainly, in making that choice to stick with Fernwood, um, this independent left publisher over the years, it's certainly never. Hurt my career. I mean, I was promoted to full professor. They made me a distinguished professor. Um, I'm now distinguished professor emerita. Like I, you know, it didn't hurt me at all. Um, So from that vantage point, um, I, I think it it was really important. And also, just if you look at the lineup of books that they published, I mean, they're speaking to all those really important issues and topics, and they're providing. Readers with a, a frame that helps to make sense of what's going on and and a frame that you don't get from reading the the mainstream media or uh, the what's generally out there in the public discourse.
1: Part of these interviews has been uh, learning a little bit more about the authors themselves, and so I've got a number of questions that are a little more rapid fire, although I say that and often the answers spill into other conversations. So don't feel like you need to be too brief with your responses. But the first question is, what is your favorite place to read
0: and what is your favorite place to write? So two questions in one. With with two different answers, I suppose. My my favorite place to read would probably be sitting on the dock uh, at the lake by the water that would be my favorite place but my favorite place to write would definitely be this wonderful office that i have at home that is just that's this is my place this is my kind of my comfort zone what uh, books do you have
1: on your to read pile right now
0: well i'm i'm almost finished uh, richard power's book it's called the overstory um he won a Pulitzer Prize for it, which I'm, I'm not surprised because it's very well written. Um, I, I've got Sarah Polly's book, um, When Towards the Danger, that's um, sitting on my shelf, waiting uh, for it next. And then I, I would like to get a hold of Gaber Mate's um, latest book that he's written, I think, with his son around trauma and toxic culture. That sounds really interesting. Hmm. Do you have any rituals that prepare you to write? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it used to, I used to burn incense uh, that just to kind of create thinking maybe that's going to help definitely coffee. <laughs> um, I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to get, I usually get up like around six in the morning and I, you know, will uh, get a cup of coffee and come to my computer and, and that's kind of like my favorite time of the day. Uh, to work on something is first thing in the morning. What are you doing these days for fun? That's pretty easy to answer. Um, hanging out with my granddaughters. Um, they are two and almost five. And hanging out with with smaller people like that is just awesome. Because, you know, whether you're spending your time blowing bubbles or reading books or playing hide and seek or whatever it might be. It's like everything else just disappears and you're just there in the moment. Mm. It's wonderful.
1: Has that given you the, uh, the desire to write children's books?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, like I, like I said, I'm not a writer. (laughs) Um, I don't think I'd have the skill for that. It always reminds me of Margaret Lawrence. Uh, I remember seeing her interviewed one time And uh, she made the comment, when I retire, I'm going to become an accountant. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody always says, oh, when I retire, I'm going to write a book. It's not so easy. Yeah. No,
1: no. and I'm not sure that Margaret did uh, retire. (laughs) No. (laughs) Certainly didn't become an an accountant.
0: Uh, What is a book that's changed your life? I'm not sure I could say there's a book that's changed my life. Um, But if I think about a book that has had a really strong influence on my thinking about the work that I do. Um, you know, one that stands out, there's a, uh, it's a book by Carol Smart called Feminism and the Power of Law. And it came out in 1989. And it, I always, like, I love that book. And mainly because it got me thinking about issues in a very different way. I mean, she's a very good writer, but what she was trying to push back against, especially at that time was that sense that you know feminists should go to law because if we go to law, we can fix things, right? That the law is going to make everything okay, and she just went, no, no, <laughs> that's law is part of the problem, right? And so she's got this really good analysis of the way that law deals with issues like rape and sexual assault, and you know a, a really good critique of that. So she was, um, she came out with this book at a time that I think was really, really important and really significant in terms of a movement to try to make transformative change, where she's saying, uh, I don't think that's the route to go, that uh, it's not going to get you what you think it will.
1: Wow. And that would have been obviously around the time of, of the fight to, to the Borgenthaler decision and uh, very deep debates within the feminist movement about what's the best path forward.
0: Yeah, it was post-Morgan but it was yeah, lots of um, lots of uh, emphasis on um, you know family law on um, you know the, a lot of the sexual assault decisions. Um, you had the battered woman syndrome being recognized by the Supreme Court for women who killed their partners in self-defense. You know th- those sorts of things. There was a lot going on at the time for sure.
1: Wow. The final question is Who is someone you look up to?
0: That, is, you know, that's it. It's kind of an odd question because to say you look up to someone, like I'm actually looking up right now, that it's like you put someone on a pedestal. I probably want to reframe that question like somebody that I really respect or somebody that I really admire or, um, you know, for what they stand for and the way they live their lives and such, how they interact with other people. Um, And there's probably a number of people that come to mind for that. Um, But I got to say, my partner would have to be my partner. I mean, I've been observing him for over 40 years and um, he's just, um, I have great respect for him. Hmm.
1: where can people find your work um
0: well the fernwood website is one um in winnipeg uh, mcnally robinson um carries um most of my um most recent books but i would say that uh, through fernwood elizabeth thank you so much for this conversation thank you
1: You've been listening to my conversation with Elizabeth Komac as part of the 30 Wood podcast series. Episodes come out every two weeks, so be sure to check back to hear your favourite Fernwood authors. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network check out harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com don't forget to like subscribe and share your favorite episodes many intersectional you nothing we haven't been through before they stop me at the border call me a fauna because I question why they